And we'll never have this moment again. This is a special moment orchestrated by God. And when you think about life, life is a series of moments. Some you would identify as extraordinary, wonderful, amazing moments. Some may be dark, dreary, difficult. Some moments that are uh, moments that are filling your life up with jubilee and excitement and other moments that just seem monotonous. Life is filled with moments. And our charge to the candidates tonight, I want to give you one phrase. Maximize your moments. You have a select number of moments that you will have on this earth. And I want to charge our candidates here tonight to maximize your moments. And there are three specific areas I want to focus in on. Are you surprised being a Baptist preacher? Three specific areas. And the first is to maintain intimacy with God. Why is that number one? Because that is most important. Maintaining intimacy with God. Your ministry will never rise above the level of your intimacy with God. And the way God has orchestrated our relationship with him is we determine the level of our intimacy with the Lord. And then everything you do in life and in ministry flows out of that abiding love relationship that you have the privilege of nurturing and maintaining. Of course, Jesus modeled the value of intimacy with God. Whenever you study the life of Christ, you'll notice patterns. You'll notice uh, consistency in his life where he would maximize a moment and he would generate this moment with our heavenly father. Jesus was a morning person. So if you want to be like Jesus, you have to be a morning person. Now I'm just picking. God has given you a biological rhythm. We want you to maximize that. What we learn about Jesus is that he, he guarded his mornings with our heavenly father. In Mark chapter 1, verse 35, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. I want to charge our candidates here tonight to guard your moments with the Master. Your love relationship with Jesus Christ is the most important relationship in your life, both for time and for all eternity. The second area, make room for marriage and family. Your family needs you. And of course, tonight, we're identifying you, affirming you, we're setting you apart. And you're part of a wonderful, vibrant, growing mega church in a multicultural set and a multi-site reality. We are blessed. We are seeking to reflect heaven on earth. But what you need to learn about this wonderful, amazing church called Champion Force Baptist Church is there's a strong current of ministry, of life change. And if you aren't careful, your foot will get stuck in that current and it'll suck you right in and you'll give your whole life to serving ministry at Champion Force Baptist Church. And you'll neglect your marriage and family or you'll neglect your walk with God. And so I want to challenge you to maximize your moments by making room for marriage and family. Your home is your primary mission field. That's where it starts. That's where we learn how to live out the one another's of scripture, love one another, serve one another, forgive one another, bear with one another. Would you say that with me? Bear with one another. That's where we learn to live out the one another's of life, marriage and family. 
So your ministry starts with your marriage and family. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, where Peter writes, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. One translation says, Be considerate as you live with your wives, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, isn't that interesting? The way you serve your wife impacts your prayer life. So, guard that relationship. Make room for marriage. And of course, as Andy Stanley shared in his book, Choosing to Cheat, now called When Work and Family Collide, he acknowledges that there's not enough of you to go around. Somebody will feel cheated, and you get to choose who you will cheat. Don't cheat your spouse, and don't cheat your family. Whenever David and I met, uh, he was pastor at New Zion Baptist Church. I was at First Baptist Folsom, and that's where we met the Flemings, and the Trammels and Flemings became best friends, and we did life together. Tanya and Beverly enjoyed hanging out. Pastor David and I enjoyed hanging out. He and I commuted to seminary together with our worship leaders slash student ministers, and Two in the car were not morning people. Two were high verbal morning people. So our commute for an hour to an hour and 30 minutes every morning going to New Orleans Seminary was very unique and interesting. And we had a context to live out the one another's of life. Well, we each had parsonages. Now, parsonage means that the church owns the house you get to live in. So the First Baptist Church of Folsom Parsonage, that's where we lived. And this house was much larger than the one Tanya and I grew up in. It was much larger than the apartment, the 1,100-square-foot apartment we moved out of to move into that parsonage. And it had a playroom. Of course, my daughter, Tori, when she was really young, was really into Barbies. How many of you know what I'm talking about, Barbies? So she had the Barbie tent. She had the Barbie sleeping bag, the Barbie pillow. She had the Barbie Corvette with Ken and Barbie. And I was in my recliner working on my doctorate at that time, so reading extensively, had a really thick book with my pen, making notes, reading, reading, reading. And I heard a little voice from the playroom, and it was Tori, Dad, come play. Now, this was not a good time for me to come play. I was on a strict schedule to get this read and get this paper written. Dad, come play. So I thought, okay, I'm going to take my book and my pen, and I'm going to go in there. And she said, come get in the Barbie tent. So I crawled in the Barbie tent on the sleeping bag and laid my head back on that Barbie pillow. Ken and Barbie were next to me in their pink Corvette, which was pretty cool. Tori's right there just playing, combing Barbie's hair. And I pulled my book onto my chest, and I started to read. And I thought, this is great. I'm going to kill two birds with one stone. And then Tori said, Dad, don't read. Had I kept reading, I would have missed the moment. When your children or your grandchildren invite you into their private world, I have one word for you. Go! Go! This past Sunday, our son Austin, uh, they have football on Sundays at Rice, and he came up to visit that afternoon. His girlfriend had come into town to come to the game, so uh, they came together and, and came to our home, and we went two miles down the road to our new campus, and I have the code, so I have access. 
and we went in, just don't tell anybody, we went in and toured the whole facility. And I noticed as we were walking, Pastor David Austin had a football. Now that's unique to go tour a church with a football, but if you know Austin, that's very normal. So we go through the building, we get into the worship center, and he climbs all the way up to the top to our new terrace seating that goes up to the top of the back of the worship center. So he's way up high. I'm on the podium. I'm getting used to the new podium and practicing what it's going to be like to preach in this beautiful fan-shaped worship center with, that you don't have to set up. And so he's up at the top, and I could sense it. I knew it was coming. Mark, I knew, I knew, I knew. And he said, hey, Dad. And I look up, and he hummed that football. Can you throw a football in church? Well, you can. I saw it Sunday at 3.30. You can. He threw that football from the top of the worship center. I'm on the, he threw it all the way to me. And then I threw it back. And it's much harder to throw it up than down. Back and forth, back and forth. Now you say, but Pastor, what's the big deal? The big deal is we established that moment, 20 years ago, when he was born, his first word was not ma or dad. It was ball. <laughs> and we, that's how we grew our relationship, ball. And he played sports his whole life. And we spent hour upon hour out in the street, out in the yard, throwing ball. Sunday at 337 was our moment. When we move in in Easter of April, when I stand in that pulpit to preach the word of God and I look up to the top in that back, I'm going to see an Austin with a football. Don't miss the moment. If you miss it, you'll never get it back. Now, why is that important? You can get your life so wrapped up in doing many good things in ministry that make a difference and neglect the most important relationships in your life. Maximize your moments. Maintain intimacy with God. Make room for marriage and family. Then thirdly, multiply your ministry. Multiply your ministry through servitude. Multiply your ministry through servitude. Of course, Jesus is our model to follow. In John 13 and 15, for I have given you an example. This is Jesus. Where he takes a towel and basin and washing the disciples' feet. And he says, for I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Now, we have ministers being ordained tonight, vocational ministry. We have deacons who have been previously ordained who are being installed that Stephen mentioned a moment ago. We have deacons who have gone through the process and will be ordained officially here tonight to serve as deacons of Champion Forest Baptist Church. This is a special, special night. But I want to tell you about a moment I had a week ago Friday. We invited Norris Crownover's home for his 80th birthday. He's a deacon here in our church, just a solid, core, godly young, godly young man at the age of 80. And it was his birthday. So we had a wonderful meal together. Then uh, they, they moved all the tables and encircled the, the den area with chairs so that everybody could see everybody. And then Norris blew out his candles. And it took, well, it took quite a while. <laughs> but it was wonderful. And then wondering what's next. And we thought we would just have a shared time where we could each share about what he meant to us and how special he was to us. But instead, he pulled out a sheet of paper and he said to the ladies, now ladies, I want to talk to your husbands. Now, I love you and Judy and I thank God for you, but I want to speak to the men. And he went name by name, each person by name. And what 
listen to this, what he had learned from that person. We're talking about Norris Crownover. We're talking about the man who was vice chairman of Exxon Asia. And now it's what he's learning currently from men, what he's learned in his relationship with them. And it was such a powerful moment as he went name by name and he would say, and you know, as I've watched you, here's what I've learned from you. Tears would well up, the wives' tears would well up, just person by person by person. And as he was going through name by name and having that divine moment, the moment, I thought this is what authentic community looks like. This is what it looks like when you become part of a church family and you get connected to a life group and, and they joined in 1998, been members 20 years, doing life with people their age and life stage in life group. That was authentic community. And then he said, we want you to pray for us. And I honestly thought he was about to say that his prostate cancer had returned just because of the moment and how he's about to eat. And then he said, you know, we need you to pray for us. We have a burden for our neighborhood. And we're deeply burdened about our street and our cul-de-sac. And he went neighbor by neighbor, just talking about each neighbor and their spiritual reality. And then he said, would you pray for us? We have purchased Christmas spectacular tickets for every neighbor. And we're going to personally invite them to come to our Christmas production so they can experience the gospel. That's what he wanted us to pray with him about. And here's what I thought. Norris and Judy know how to maximize a moment. They know how to multiply ministry by maximizing a moment. And that's my charge to our candidates. And that's a charge I also want to apply to my own life. May God have his way. Thank you, Pastor Stephen, for challenging us and encouraging us tonight. I want to do the same, but my charge is to charge you as a congregation, which means all those included, those being ordained tonight and those of us who will be participating in that ordination and those of us who will be witnesses to it tonight. I, I want to call your attention uh, to two places in the text very quickly. And if you'll notice in your listening guide, there are about 150 verses I've given you don't worry, that's for your benefit and for your perusal later on if you'd like to have a little Bible study time to walk through those scriptures. Uh, all of them have place tonight, but of course we won't have time to read each one. But I do want you to hear from Acts chapter 6 in the context of the seven deacons who were first chosen to serve when, as perhaps you know, there was a complaint by the Hellenists, the Greeks against the Hebrews because they were feeling neglected in the basic needs of daily distribution and food. And so a conversation ensued, and some men were chosen, men who were full of faith, of the Holy Spirit. Their names are given, and verse 6 says this, These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And then in Acts 13, Barnabas and Saul likewise are set apart and sent off through the laying on of hands. Verse 3, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So clearly what we're here to do tonight is, is biblical. And we're happy to follow in this great tradition of our faith and of the early church to set some men apart. Now, while we are certainly setting them apart to serve in various ways, either as a deacon or as a minister of the gospel, uh, remember that they've already to set themselves apart through service. 
because we wouldn't be having this conversation with this group of men and women had they not already set themselves apart through faithful service here at the local church and in their community. So really what we're doing tonight is affirming what they have already begun. But there is a sense in which tonight is a setting apart unto. Uh, and, and so that's an important distinction. I want to remind you all, you all look great tonight. You're all wearing suits. The thing is, I don't see most of you like this on Sunday. I don't know. Um, Pastor Avery's here. He and I are typically the only ones in the suit on Sunday. But you all look great. But here's what I want to remind you. In spite of the fact that tonight we will set you apart through the laying on of hands in prayer, tonight when you go home, just to sort of follow up on what Pastor Stephen was saying, you'll still need to take out the trash, okay? <laughs> All right? In fact, your wife is smart, and she's not above using your new title of deacon or minister against you. Should you be reluctant to take out the trash, then she may say something like this, some deacon you turned out to be. <laughs> what was all that about when they laid on hands and all that, honey? So, you know, I mean, it could work for you or maybe it could work against you, but either way, there's something really special, really ordained of God, I will say, to be ordained by the local church. It's a great opportunity for us as well in the context of a charge to the church to be reminded of some key concepts with regard to Baptist polity, that is, how we function, how we work, how the church operates. We're different, of course. We're not like the Presbyterians. God bless everyone. We're not like the Methodists. We're not like the Assemblies of God. We're not like the Catholics. Organizationally and structurally, Baptists are different. A little weird. And we like it that way. Because we understand, first of all, you'll notice this key concept, ownership of the church is already established. So it's important whenever we talk about the church and how the church works is we're first reminded of who owns the church. And Jesus clearly established in Matthew 16, I will build my church. So ownership is established. He's the only one who died to redeem the church. Therefore, he retains ownership and he's committed to be the one responsible to grow it. Now, he's entrusted it to us and we've received it with trust as stewards. Our job is to be, bound, be found faithful stewards of the gift that God has given us in the body of Christ. But never, ever, ever are we to take ownership of something that doesn't belong to us. Mark, if a steward takes ownership, he's no longer a steward. He's a thief. So we won't take what is not ours. It's his. Notice, secondly, key concept, the headship and lordship, therefore, of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.18 says, Jesus is the head of his body, the church. That just simply means this. He's the boss. He's in charge of his church. It makes perfect sense, but it's good to sometimes be reminded that we're here to serve the Lord. And while we serve one another, and some will lead and others will follow in different contexts, at the end of the day, we want to follow Jesus, be faithful to obey his word and to fulfill his will. That leads me to the third key concept, the priesthood of the believer. You may remember when Jesus was crucified that the temple curtain was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And a lot of people see an image or a picture in that that God did the tearing, not man. And in so doing, opened the way, removing that separation even in the Holy of Holies so that we could have bold access to come into the presence of the Father. I'm telling you this because the priesthood of believers is a really important concept in the body of a Baptist church. What I'm saying is, is we're not setting apart these men 
or tonight their wives or any of us who have already been ordained as your intermediaries. We are not your intercessors in the sense that you need us to get to God. We're here to get out of your way so that you can have access to the very throne of God. And so we want to just encourage us as a church tonight to remember that there are places and people in offices and serve in different ways. But at the end of the day, every Christian is equally responsible for their own soul and their own spiritual journey and their own obedience and intimacy to the Lord. That said, we are an autonomous or congregationally governed church. We see that in Acts 3. The church chooses the seven deacons who are then ordained. That means that we as a church are independent and autonomous, not isolated. That would be a mistake. But through cooperative efforts, Baptists are independently owned and operated, meaning self-governed, locally governed bodies of believers that agree together to cooperate. And so what, what that means is, is, as you look around a room like this, where a lot of decisions are made about once a quarter, and in rooms like this on each of our locations, there's no outside authority except God over this local church or this body of believers. Now that's a privilege, but it comes with great responsibility. Because we can't blame the bishop. We can't lay this off on the ecclesiastical structure or the presbyter or the district office or the overseers. And we have no pope to blame. All the responsibility for the governance of this church is sitting in this room right now. Congratulations, you're in charge. Except for this. This does not mean that a Baptist church is a democracy. That would be a terrible misunderstanding of what congregational government is. And oftentimes in a church we have squabbles and church fights and church splits. It's because we've forgotten that this is not a democracy where we vote our will or our preferences. This is a theocracy with Jesus Christ as the head and God our Father. We just have one responsibility as a congregation and that is to discern the will of God and to lean into it with all of our hearts. So while we are congregationally governed, it is for one purpose and for one reason. is to ask and answer the question, what does God want us to do as his people? So you see these key concepts and then they lead us to the question, then what about these men? And what about those who are ordained to one of these particular two offices? There are two, by the way. In fact, if you read the letter to the church at Philippi, chapter 1, Paul writes, servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the saints who are at Philippi. And then he says... The overseers, or elders, or pastors, those words are often interchangeably used, and deacons, which are these two offices that we see here tonight as men are being set apart and ordained to serve in. So we have the office of overseer, or elder, or pastor. In fact, there are some great passages that, that we could use to unpack that, but I just want to read to you from 1 Peter 5, where we see those three terms used essentially interchangeably. Peter writes, verse, five, verse 1, chapter 5, I exhort the elders, that's presbyteros, those who are older with responsibility and authorities. I exhort the elders among you as fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Verse 2, he says, shepherd or poimen, which means to lead and to feed the flock of God that is among you, exercising, and here's the third word, oversight or episcopeo, to watch over or care for 
end of the parentheses, not under compulsion but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, Arch Pomaine, when he appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. There, those three different words are used essentially for the same office, that being the overseer, the elder, or the pastor. The vision and the direction that comes from God to organize, train, equip, to mobilize, to lead, and to serve the needs of the body as a servant leader. All that falls under the responsibility of you who are being ordained tonight to the gospel ministry. And then there's the office of the deacon, which we've already read from Acts 6. The word is diakonos. Uh, congratulations, Jesus was a deacon. So you're in good company. Well, in the sense, not as an office of the local church, but a diakonos just simply means a servant. And it is one who serves. And so as you serve, you are serving alongside the Lord, as well as overseers, elders, and pastors. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, might do you some good to read there for fun sometime, both the requirements for the overseer and the deacon are listed there. And they're excellent, wonderful life uh, encouragements for all of us who serve in these capacities. So we serve along together, and the deacons especially in the role of support for pastoral ministry, for care, to be sure that the needs of the congregation are being met, and to always be consistent in maintaining the spirit of unity in the body of Christ. And that's no small order. Uh, especially in a Baptist church where if any 100 Baptists gather, you have at least 102 opinions. So for the deacons to be jealous for the unity of the church, to keep people on the same page, to keep people going together, occasionally to put out a fire or two, or perhaps once in a while a blaze or two, is no small task, and we are so grateful I tell you, uh, I've told my deacons this, our deacons this, many, many, many times, and I want to say this to you being ordained as deacons today. In 27 years of ministry over four different churches in four different states, I have never had a crossword or an uncomfortable conversation or a saddening or disheartening deacons meeting. Never, not once. Would you agree tonight to help me keep my record intact? The wives are nodding. The men are like, we'll see, buddy. We'll see. Well, I'm just blessed, and I know Pastor Stephen would say the same thing. We are blessed throughout all of our ministries to have men of God and women who have just come along beside us in such a cooperative spirit, in such an eager way to serve together and alongside of. It's been a wonderful partnership. And I would say that's the most important thing to do to preserve the unity of the church is for the leaders of the church to be unified. So I want to encourage all of us, deacons and deacon spouse, deacon families, ministry staff and, and wives, we... We are the church in small, so as we go, so goes the church at large. So we want to maintain that spirit of unity. In fact, I, I mentioned leadership in the church. It really is interesting. I, I love it, and I'm often able to teach on leadership, and I maintain that leading the church is the quintessential kind of leadership because you're leading volunteers who you don't pay, but who pay you. So if leadership is getting people to do what they otherwise wouldn't do, absent your leadership, in such a way that they thank you when it's done, add, that, add to that element the fact that you, you, you can't fire them. <laughs> they, they won't go away. You can't withhold their bonus check. It's in heaven. 
You can't threaten them. You can't conjole them. You can, you can shame them. Baptists are good with shame. But other than that, we just don't have much to work with except influence. And so leading in the life of the church is really, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, challenge and opportunity. Some have said it's like herding cats. Not hurting, herding. Don't send me emails, cat lovers. Herding, like trying to, you know, or pushing a rope uphill, right? It's difficult. So what can we as a church do to help these men as they lead us well? The office of overseer, elder, pastor, and the office of deacon. Let me give you four quick points in close. Number one, follow them. And I admit it's a little self-serving for me to say these things to you. I'm one of them. But somebody's got to do it. (laughs) And this is my chance. And by the way, I was a church member before I was a church minister for quite a few years at Daytona Beach and know exactly how it feels to to want to follow someone who wants to lead. Follow them. In the scripture, we've got some pretty powerful passages. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you will. Uh, Let me share with you. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Hebrews 13, 17 is the most favorite verse in all of the Bible for Baptist preachers. We get together in Baptist preacher meetings and we celebrate this verse because it says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. Now you know why we like it so much. We just don't have the courage to come home and have a Bible study with you over Hebrews 13. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. So number one, follow them. Because they are, will be, after tonight, God's ordained men to lead this church. But we agreed to it. Or at least the ordination council agreed to it. And in a few moments when they're seated here and we pray over them and you say amen, we will have agreed to God's ordained way of leading this church So we want to follow our leaders. Number two, we want to serve with them and alongside them, I would say. No super-hired holy men syndrome here, please. The Bible says that these are given to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And one of the marks of an unhealthy congregation is when there is an expectation that the minister or the pastor or the deacon will do all the ministry. And everybody else will just sit back and watch and perhaps cheer them on or ask for more. But in reality, the biblical model is is that we not only serve with you and alongside you, but our responsibility is to train, equip, and mobilize you to do the work of ministry. So I had this conversation this very day uh, with Chester Hicks about what it's like to get to a hospital room or to a home after a tragedy and not to be the first minister or the first person through the door, but a life group teacher is there or a deacon is there. And not to feel the least bit insecure about that or to feel any sense of failure, to feel success in that because that means that we've had the privilege to push people forward to the front lines of ministry and they've gone willingly to the task. That's success. And you heard Pastor Stephen encourage you, deacons and ministers, the success of your life and ministry will not only be measured in what you yourself do, but how many times you can multiply what you can do in the lives and through the lives of others. That's what Jesus did. And he said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. So we want to serve together and alongside of each other. Thirdly, you can encourage and support these. They'll need it. 
That's biblical too, 1 Thessalonians 5. Therefore, in the same context of leadership, encourage one another and build one another up. So that's a mutual responsibility that the pastors and the deacons are to encourage the congregation and the courage of the congregation is to encourage the ministry staff, the ordained staff and the deacons as well. And I will tell you this, it's common for those in ministry to struggle with, with discouragement. It doesn't take but one person to hit you on the way out of the pulpit or the way out the door of the church or on your way to the car to just drain your good tank. Just, just drain it, just drain it. Drain it. It just takes one comment. And we're not supposed to be that way, and it's not good to be that way. We, we should have thick skin and tender hearts, right? Uh, but too, too often we have thin skin and hard hearts because we just take the, the, the hits and take the hits. So imagine that these deacons, their wives, and these pastors and their wives, they have a tank. It's a, it's a courage tank. And every time somebody criticizes or complains or challenges, a little of that juice flows out. But every time you say a good word, a kind word, an encouraging word, a helpful word, I'm praying for you word, hey, thanks for your service word. Every time you do that, you make a deposit of courage into that courage tank. And we all need that, I can assure you. And these will as well. So encourage and support them. And lastly, of course, pray for them. And that's what we're about to do. We have the scriptural admonition, of course, to pray for our ministers, to pray for our deacons, to pray for our leaders, to pray for one another. Because the work that we're doing is not only heart labor, meaning that our heart is the primary tool of our trade, so it's tender, but this is spiritual work. So we're battling in the spiritual realm as we advance the kingdom through serving the body of Christ. So please, please, please pray for those who are being set apart in ordination tonight, not just tonight, but in the coming days, weeks, months, and years. Make it a habit. Make it a pattern of your prayer life to pray for your leaders, to pray for those who serve our church. Pray for the presence of God. Pray for His provision in their lives. Pray for His protection over their lives. And if you're wishing you had a better pastor, pray for one. In the context of praying for a better pastor, God may make you a better prayer for a better pastor. And who knows if God might give both of you the opportunity to be better pastor and person. But do pray for your leaders. I too, as Pastor Stephen mentioned, always get a little nostalgic. It was 27 years ago uh, that uh, Lawrence Clegg preached my ordination sermon. Stephen was there. And uh, he, said, uh, he said, David, I was uh, one day uh, talking to a lady and she said, uh, you're a fine young preacher and I can't wait to hear you when you get a little older. He said, that hurt, but not nearly as bad as before he realized the next time someone said, you're a fine preacher. I would love to have heard you in your prime. <laughs> and he said, I don't know what happened between those two comments, but somewhere in there, I missed my prime. I'll never forget that comment. And I'll tell you why I remember that and everything about that night, because it marked me. It marked me that my church was willing to set me apart and to acknowledge God's call on my life and ministry and lay their hands on me prayerfully and set me apart to serve and to lead and that they were willing to follow. It marked me. All these years later, it still moves me. And I pray in 27 years, what marks you tonight 
will move you still. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray that the truth of God's word is both encouraging and uplifting to you. If you'd like more information about our church, service times, or locations, or if you have a question about what you heard today and you want to connect with someone, I want to encourage you to visit us on our website at championforest.org. Have a great day and God bless.